Hi, I'm Keith McCullough. I just had a real conversation with the, the literal godfather of the long bond call, the beekeeper himself, Dr. Gary Schilling. He's the man. I love this conversation. Looking forward to you hearing what we had to talk about. Well, thanks, Gary. Thanks for taking the time and for coming to Hedgeye. We appreciate it. I'm delighted to be here. It's, it's, it's great to have the ultimate of long-term bond bulls in the house. It's something that, you know, in the last, allegedly, the, the, the long bond bull is dead. We have Dalio, Druckenmiller, people who came, I think, to the long bond position well after you, you did. Uh, you're the founding father, if you will, of this thesis. Yeah, since 1981. Yeah, that's a long 30, time ago. 36 years ago. Uh, and now you got this, you know, allegedly it's over. How do you react to that? Do you even have to react to that at this stage? Of your what career? else is new? <laughs> I mean, all the way down in yields, all the way up in prices, that's been, the, that's been the consensus view. Rates are going up. They can't last. Inflation is going to come, come back. Um, I don't think there's ever been one time. And that's one of the interesting things about bonds is you've not had irrational exuberance. You get that in stocks because people get carried away. But nobody, there are very few of us who've been consistently interested in bonds for decades. And so you just don't get that, you don't get that irrational exuberance. Yeah, I mean, going on four decades, I mean, you really had to believe in a lot of things longer term. And I want to get back into that in a second. But you just got back from Hong Kong. You got a pretty good pulse or at least a, a feel on what consensus is. The consensus is still not to be long bonds. And, and what? Where are people? Oh, well, it, it was interesting because uh, this meeting in Hong Kong was a lot of, I, I'd say, cutting edge uh, managers, hedge funds, and, and managers of, of major uh, asset pools. And I was surprised how much they were in the consensus, which basically is that Yields are going up, inflation is coming back, commodity prices are coming up, and the dollar has is, is peaked out. Well, consensus can be right. I mean, mm-hmm. there's, just to say it's a consensus, you don't say it's always wrong. But you don't add any value, in my view, by rehashing the consensus. And that's what kind of surprised me, that there was so much unanimity, because that's, I think that's pretty much the universal view, view mm-hmm. right now. Well, it's interesting. that Do you think the consensus is bullish on the dollar? No, I, I, it has been. But I think a lot of people are saying, well, the dollar has come too far too fast, and it, and it can't last. Whereas you, you think the dollar can continue to go higher. Oh, sure, because if, if you look at it, um, first of all, the dollar is safe haven, uh, and we're in, a, we're in a sea of global trouble. And secondly, everybody in the world wants to devalue against the dollar. Mm-hmm. Why? Because they want cheaper currencies to spur exports, retard imports, and so everybody devalues. Now, the dollar can't devalue. Who can we devalue against? You know, we're the, we're the global currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of course, to a certain extent, this cancels each other out. In other words, if other countries uniformly devalue against the dollar, they gain against the dollar, but not against the U.S. in trade, but not against each other. But, but uh, I think that, that persists. You look at the, the Bank of Japan, they lust for a, for, for a weaker yen. The ECB, Draghi, would love to have a cheaper euro. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't think that the Brits now with Brexit, they want a cheaper currency. And then you look at emerging markets. Money is just flowing out of those things. Flowed in because everybody said, we got to have a higher yield, zeal for yield. Now it's flowing out. Uh, and those currencies are, uh, most of them are weak. So, yeah, I think, I think the dollar's got a long way to go. I, I, I'm on record as saying, 
I think we'll see 150 on the yen and uh, and below parity on the euro. Well, I mean, it's been there before, of course. I mean, we've seen 155 yen, we've seen 85 cent euro. Oh, yeah, there was 350 yen at one point. Heath, <laughs> <laughs> if you go back far enough. Oh, yeah, no, no, this is not... And and uh, right after the euro was introduced, I think it went down to 89, something like that. This was in 1999. But you will hear the... I know you're not short-term, but in the short-term, we do. I do pay attention. And I'm hearing some of the craziest things. I mean, Kuroda now and Abe are talking about how economic growth is back because the Nikkei went up. Uh, yeah. At the same time, people will then say, oh, that means they're going to taper and tighten. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. I mean, who in Japan is going to want a tight? I mean, do you believe that for a second? Well, how many times have we had that? I mean, when Abe was, was, was uh, elected, what was that, 2012 or whenever it was, you remember there was a huge, huge run in, in the Nikkei and, and, uh, and the uh, yen sold off. And, the, you know, his three arrows, yep. uh, fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and structural reform, they were going to happen instantly. Mm-hmm. Of course, we had pretty much the same, same reaction with mm-hmm. Trump with his election. But there is this, I think there's so much of this feeling of things have to happen instantly. And the media, of course, thrives on that. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have anybody on, on uh, financial TV or radio who says, we're going to have 15 minutes of silence because there's nothing really to say. <laughs> okay. It's always, there's something here. You've got to wait. It's coming up. We've got a full schedule. I mean, hey, that's what those guys get paid to yeah. do. Uh, and I'm involved with them plenty. But... But I think you have to sit back occasionally and say, is there really anything new or strange and exotic happening here, or is this just an attempt to, uh, to generate interest? Yeah, well, one thing that you hear often, it's, and, it, and I can't quite get, get it right in terms of why the, the, the media would be this way, but they're so anti-dollar, it's almost like they're a, a, a group of 16th century exporters. I mean, they get paid in dollars, and they can't quite understand what the value is of the dollars that they get paid in Going up. Yeah, that's a very good. That's a very good point. That's a very good. I mean, point. It, it, yeah, but, but if yeah. you look at your, I mean, now I want to kind of take a, a, a longer step back. If you, I mean, you were the author of de, you know the great, the great deleveraging, deflation. How much had the dollar pay, played a role in that over the course of the last forty years? Because we've had episodic ramps in the dollar. We've had yeah. gradual climbs in the dollar. We've had devaluations in the dollar. But you were right the whole time. Is the dollar ever is, is it part of the deflation thesis that it's well? Part? It is for the U.S. of course because a stronger dollar uh, reduces the uh, reduces the cost of our imports and it and it also forces exporters to reduce their costs, which spreads mm-hmm. domestically because they they have to do that to to sell in foreign currencies without raising it in foreign currency prices. So it's deflationary for the U.S. But but. That's the flip side is it has the opposite effect on our trading partners. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the U.S. economy is so big, and our foreign sector, I mean, our exports are only 13% of GDP. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canada is 30%. Uh, Germany is 50%. We are largely a domestic economy. Now, the world you and I live in, the financial world, is much more uh, globally oriented. Mm-hmm. But, but it's easy for us to lose sight of the fact that the vast majority of the U.S. economy doesn't have anything to do with the international area. But the, the, large, uh, the large swath of sound bites have to do with how the dollar is such a bad thing. Um, if you go, do you see a scenario where you're right on the dollar and you don't see inflation, or reflation rather, I call it reflation, not inflation. Uh, I don't know if you agree or disagree with that, so feel free, I'm, I know you'll let me know. But <laughs> well, I think see, we're more headed for deflation, yeah. but go so, ahead. So do you see a scenario where you're right on the dollar and you don't get deflation again? Um, yeah, I think you can have that because you have a lot of sentiment going in there. If you look back at the dollar, you know, you had a huge run-up in the 80s, peaked up in, in 1985, 
Then you had a, a decline uh, starting about four years ago, a rally. Uh, and, and you look at this, and a lot of ways the dollar's in its, its own world. We looked at, for example, we looked at the current account deficit in this country. Now, that's the extent that we're pumping out money each mm-hmm. year. Uh, and you say, well, gee, if you're, if you're flooding the world with money, that ought to be bad for the currency, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. I've got a graph that shows for the entire post-war period the relationship between that current account and the dollar. And boy, if you can find a correlation in there, you're, you're better than I am. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't exist. I, I, I think the sentiment has an awful lot to do with the currencies and the safe haven effect. Although, and so the safe haven is part and parcel with the relative... Um, slowings or not of other economies. Oh, that sure. Have oh, sure. We're, you know, we're, we're not in a, it isn't just the U.S., there's the rest of the world out there. Well, some people will say now, okay, Keith, uh, the dollar's strong. You like, I like the dollar too. Okay, so we're, we're both paid in dollars. We, we like the dollar. <clears throat> That's nice. Um, but they'll say, well, Janet Yellen's not going to let the dollar go up much further. And that's just that, because as soon as China starts to get concerned, she's going to start to devalue again. Do you agree with that? When did the Fed have that much power? Exactly. I mean, these guys, you know, it's like, uh, it's like uh, uh, in Macbeth, a lady doth protest her virtue over much. <laughs> I mean, I mean so the, the Fed, these guys, uh, well, uh, all due respect, but they overrate their ability. Mm-hmm. I mean, and their forecasting has been absolutely atrocious. Horrible. You know, uh, they've been looking for much more rapid economic growth, more inflation, going to raise interest rates tomorrow. Um, and the administration's, uh, administration, these guys, they... They, they really get Potomac fever. They really believe they have a lot more impact on not just the U.S. economy but the world than they, than they do. And, of course, it's always easy to attribute uh, big movements to uh, various, various changes. For example, uh, you cited I, I, in 1981, I said we're entering the bond rally of a lifetime. The yield on the, on the 30-year bond was 15.2%. Now it's 3%. Mm-hmm. Um, and, by the way, since then... Uh, Treasuries, the long bond, has outperformed the S&P by five and a half times, five and a half times. And, of course, uh, long treasuries are only suitable for little old ladies and orphans. <laughs> but if you look back then, I wrote a book uh, at that time, and I predicted all of this. It was called, Is Inflation Ending? Question mark. Are you ready? And I said, yes, it is ending, because... That was in 1983. Yeah, it, and I said, McGraw-Hill finally published it then. He had it. the view in 1981, it yeah, finally gets yeah. published. And, that's, and, that's but, why but, bo- the, but the rationale was that inflation is caused by excess demand, and that excess demand is created almost always by government. In the case of, a, of the late 60s and 70s, it was a, the war in Vietnam and great society on top of a fully employed economy. And, I ra- and my rationale was that the, that the country had turned against Washington. We saw the Proposition 13 in California mm-hmm. in 1978, and then Reagan's elected in 1980. And that was my rationale. Okay, most people, if you look back, they say, oh, it was Volcker. It was Volcker coming in, and he tamed inflation. It was on the way out anyway before that, from, from, my, from my analysis. And I, you know, I'd, I'd written this long before... He was even uh, before he well starting in the late '70s before he was Fed chairman, and I all due respect. I mean, uh, he's a, he was a very able guy, but to sort of say the Fed is all there was to it, yeah, uh, I don't I don't think that's valid. I mean, you may have expedited things with that kind yeah. of an, I mean, yeah. that was an and expedited it, it, you know, trigger mechanism. But how did you go from? And now we're kind of into the belly of of, of your track record. I mean. Um, and maybe we can get into how it takes getting fired uh, to, to really have your own convictions, build your own firm. I know something about that. Uh, no, you have your convictions and then you get fired. Bing t- <laughs> and those convictions, if they're bearish, if they're bearish. Um, but how did you go from inflation ending 
to deflation. Well, there's a difference. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the, the, what, what I was really saying in the early 80s was disinflation. In other words, lower and lower inflation rates. But I, I, got, to, I got to deflation uh, a little later, and it was really just looking around the world and saying, we're in an excess supply world. Mm. You look at what globalization uh, has done to increase supply. Uh, and it's just not just China. It's, it's all these others, you know, Thailand, Korea, uh, Bangladesh. India is the 800-pound gorilla coming up very quickly. Uh, and and it's, it's really excess supply. And, and historically, and we, we've got a very interesting table on this. If you go back to 1759, now I don't, I don't know about 1758, <laughs> but from 1759 on, if you rate all the years as wartime or peacetime, uh, there have been 93 of those years which were wartime, and inflation in those, in those years averaged uh, uh, 5.8%. But then you look at the peacetime years, the remaining years, and, and it was a negative 1.1%. Uh. In other words, the norm in peacetime is deflation. Hmm. You, you have supply exceeds demand. It's only in wartime when you have this huge excess spending by government on top of a fully employed economy that you get inflation. So mm-hmm. we started to look at evidence like that, and I said, well, you know, this is, this is going to deflation. And that, of course, ended up being right. And then you have this Federal Reserve come in with the Sisyphean fight of trying to create inflation through yeah. dollar, dollar devaluation. Good luck, guys. Yeah, I mean, you, and you really <laughs> actually had to say that for about a decade. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, of course, the, the Fed and all other central banks have this 2% inflation target. Now, you say, why do they have that? Well, it isn't because they love inflation. It's because they hate deflation, and they see the example of, of uh, Japan in the last two decades. Because what's happened there? You have, you've had deflation more years than not, and everybody gets used to it, so they develop deflationary expectations. Now, what I mean by deflationary expectations, they say, hey, the price of cars are going down. I can run this old car for another six months. I'll wait. Everybody waits. Inventories build up. It forces prices down to clear the markets. Suspicions are confirmed. They rate even further. So the result is slow growth. Japanese growth in the last two decades has averaged 1.2%. Barely any growth. And that's the the poster boy for central banks. So every major central bank has an inflation target of 2%. Because they... Now, they don't say that, and I don't know why anybody in these press conferences don't even say, well, Chairman Yellen, why don't you, why do you want 2%? They never, I don't know why they never question that. I, I'm convinced that's, that's their rationale. Well, I think they might get fired, Gary. What happens <laughs> well, if you start questioning it? <laughs> or not invited back in the press, press corps. <laughs> back to that, though. I mean, I do have, I'm only going on nine years into building our independent research firm, and I was at a big place, Carlisle, and I got fired, and I was too bearish in 2007. <clears throat> I know the drill. Um, but that's that. Your story is quite similar. Coming into the 1970s, was it the late 60s? Yeah, yeah. I, I went to I went to Merrill Lynch in 1967 as their first chief economist and set up their economics department. They didn't have any before that. That's incredible. It was it was interesting at that at that point. The bond houses in Wall Street, like Solomon Brothers, first first Boston, and so on, they had economists. But I was the first economist in a stock house, Merrill Lynch. Ah. Uh, but any event, any event, um, I forecast a the 1969 recession, and it did occur, but it wasn't being bullish on America in Merrill Lynch's parlance. So Donald T. Regan, who was running the firm, and I had a difference of opinion, obviously he won. <laughs> and so I took my entire staff, left, ended up at White Weld, another Wall Street house, not knowing in 1978 Merrill Lynch had buy White Weld. <laughs> so the story on the street, which is literally true, is Schelling's the only guy fired twice by Don Regan, 
Well, I sort of said, yeah, maybe we ought to do something else. So I set up my own firm, and by golly, was not fired by Don Regan subsequently. <laughs> that was 1978. That was 1978. Of. But it really takes, I mean, you talk a lot, and you said this already, that you know, consensus can be right, and that you have to respect yeah, that. Yeah. But, but there is a lot of um, <laughs> money to be made, obviously, but there's, 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 this is, isn't this what we do is to be the contrarian in the moment where you could actually be right? Yeah, what, what, what I look for are, are situations. With, and first of all, I don't consider myself a contrarian. A contrarian, in my definition, is somebody who's always against the consensus. Yeah, it's like a perma. Yeah. Where, where I agree with the consensus, you pass over it lightly. But move on to things that have three characteristics. One is it can't be trivial. It's got to be something is meaningful. It isn't something that's going to be revised out with the next month's data revisions. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it has a good chance of happening because ultimately you are judged by your forecasting record. And third, it is not yet within the purview of the consensus. You say not yet because you hope it is. You hope you're right. Mm-hmm. But if you have those three characteristics, boy, that's why I jump on it with all fours. Mm-hmm. And you know, that I was lucky, lucky with the, with the uh, uh, deflation uh, call, the, the call on long bonds. And another another one was uh, in in early uh, in uh, the uh, early two thousands two thousand two as a matter of fact I started to see what looked like a housing bubble mm-hmm. and followed that up and and by two thousand six said this baby's going to break and it's going to it's going to take uh, it's it's going to be tough on Wall Street and we'll probably have a major recession and and so that that worked out well too but again. You you remember that period, yep. Keith? Uh, I mean, everybody was you know this this uh, uh, no doc loans and people were buying these condos and flipping them three or four times before they came out of the ground yep. and and all this kind of you just can't miss in housing yep. and, and administration after administration. Everybody deserves oh, to be a homeowner. And no, I mean, uh, I don't know. If I mean, you, it, it, do you it, know it, Mike Michael Ernstein? Was he at Merrill Lynch when you were there? Uh, no, but I, I know of him. So, yeah. but he 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 always likes to say that. You know, the end of the whatever the inflation or the bubble is ends in a surge in supply. And, you know, the housing certainly fit that bill. Oh, sure. So did the tech. Oh, sure. And oh, it's, sure. So what is the surge? If that is if – I hate to kind of generalize and slap it into the future, but if what is the surge in supply that we see today that's deflationary? What's the most obvious? Well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's the effects of globalization. Okay. Uh, it's simply opening up. Uh, so much uh, global supply. I mean, if you if you look back, now this is this has been been uh, around for for about three decades, and I think it is the the biggest global global event uh, in certainly many many years. But we're no longer in a situation where you worry just about the U.S. and we are the world's biggest economy, or the U.S. and Europe, mm-hmm. or U.S. Europe and Japan. Now you worry about from a supply standpoint all these other places where you've basically taken Western technology and slapped it into areas where they have a, a disciplined labor force and cheap labor. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's a combination that has basically wiped out manufacturing in the West. Mm-hmm. And, of course, that's what got people mad as hell. You remember this guy Howard Beale in the old movie Network? He, he fired anchor, fired. <laughs> we got that. New he was a he was a TV anchor, and he's fired. He jumps out of his chairs, and I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Runs to the window and yells at, and everybody in the uh, yells back. Well, that's what that's where voters have been, and, yeah. and you know, especially you've had, now you've had no real growth in real incomes in uh, in all G7 countries for over a decade. So people are mad as hell. And that's what got Trump elected. Because uh, he won in the recession states. He won where there's a manufacturing and yeah, industrial yeah, recession. Absolutely. Do you think, because you, know, you said, look, the Fed has is, is got uh, misconceptions in terms of their own, their, their own power to actually move the heavens and, and the earths. How about Trump? <clears throat> yeah, well, he came in with the idea, and this is the market reaction, that he was going to instantly 
uh, get the economy rolling. And of course, sentiment just turned around uh, 180 degrees. Uh, but the reality is, he came in with two programs. One is fiscal stimulus. Now, that wasn't really new. He talked about it in the campaign. Hillary was pushing for a, a development bank. Uh, and, and Congress was seeing the footprints on the ceiling, and they knew they had to do something because voters are mad as hell. But, but that program, uh, and I think we are going to get big stimulus. It'll be in two areas. One is infrastructure, and Lord knows we need it in this country. <laughs> Roads, uh, bridges, uh, 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 rail facilities, etc. And the other one is military spending. Uh, and I think we're going to get those both big. But the question is how quickly. Because if you look at that 09, part of that fiscal stimulus was, uh, was this infrastructure spending. That was the shovel-ready projects. Well, it turned out they hadn't even made the shovels yet, and they're probably going to be made in China. Two years afterward, two years afterward, only 30% of that money had been allocated. Why? The federal government may spend the money, and Trump's got to get this through Congress, mm -hmm. but then the money's actually spent by the state governments, and they have to go through all the environmental impact statements and the, and, uh, the zoning regulations and the contracts and specs and so on and so forth. It's two or three years before that gets mm -hmm. geared up, and so I, I think markets have really jump the gun on that. Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, other th the other thing related to that is the feeling that this is going to create huge deficits. It will. And that will flood the market with treasuries and run up, run up rates. And that's why you've had the big sell-off in, in treasuries and inflation. Well, I, I, I don't see inflation because you just got too much supply in the world. And as far as a treasury sell-off, here's the Fed. The Fed and all those central banks are basically admitting that monetary policy is impotent. Why do I say that? Because what they are yelling and screaming for is fiscal stimulus. They say, we can't do the job. We need help. Well, they're not going to turn around and let uh, interest rates rise to the point they choke off the effects of fiscal stimulus. So what do they do? They buy the treasuries that are issued to finance all this uh, extra spending. It's called helicopter money. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that's nothing new about that. In World War no. II, the money supply grew 25% annual rate. Uh, why? The, the, the Fed was buying treasuries. That was supporting war effort. That was a shooting war. Now it's a war on slow growth. It's the same thing. They simply buy the treasuries and, and, and absorb them. They call it, call it QE4 if you want. Yeah, you can call it whatever you want. But, I mean, but, it is but that's one of the reasons that I'm bullish on treasuries right now. Well, do you think that you can have, um, <clears throat> like in the 1980s, where you can have a, a deflation of commodities, a strong dollar, and real consumption growth accelerate by virtue of you know, normal human beings getting effectively a tax cut in dollars, their real cost of living starts to go down. Oh, yeah. Now, now one, one, thing, one thing that's also important to this is, is productivity. Yeah. And the productivity measures lately have, 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 um, have been very poor. But there's real, me there's real questions of measuring productivity. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's fine if you're talking about some guy with a, pinch, uh, with a punch press. How many widgets does he stamp out yeah. per hour? But when you get into services and cell phones and all this, it's hard to measure. But I happen to think that productivity growth is going to come back. And it's a result. You think it's going to come back? Oh, yeah. I think it's going to be very strong. Goal. And it's a result of new technologies today that are not yet big enough to move the needle. And that's very important. Mm -hmm. uh, let me give you a couple examples, Keith. If you look at railroads, railroads were developed in the late 1700s. But only, after, only in the second half of the 19th century were they big enough in this country to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Industrial Revolution. That started in England and New England in the late 1700s. Only after the Civil War was that big enough. In other words, it takes you start from zero, you grow 100 percent a year or whatever. Yep. But it, it, it takes a while to get big enough, and I think that's where we are with biotech, with robotics, 
You know, now you've got automatic cars, uh, uh, all the uh, cell phones, all this stuff. I, I think that's going to be a big protocol. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, that's what really creates a situation where you can have deflation and strong growth. If you look at the years from, from 1870, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in history because I think human nature changes very slowly, at, if at all, so history is relevant. In other words, uh, people are going to react to similar circumstances in similar yep. ways. From, from 1876 to 1896, you had 4.0 real, real GDP growth. Never had a, a period un- uh, like that, and, and yet you had deflation of over 2% per mm-hmm. year. And that was this huge driving of uh, productivity mm-hmm. and, and uh, with those new technologies, railroads and the, indu- and the Industrial Revolution. And I think, I think that's where we're headed. Hmm. I mean, you wrote a piece recently on, on the retail sector to that degree. I mean, people forget that, mm-hmm. like, and that's a great metaphor <coughs> that you use, how long it takes for the numbers to add up. I mean, Amazon has, what, 50 to 60 billion in U.S. sales. Right. There's 4.6 trillion in U.S. retail sales. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so they're just constantly <coughs> eating the Kohl's lunch or whoever it is that's missing numbers. <laughs> Kohl's lately. lunch, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. That's is, it, it, effectively, you would say, though, that if productivity rises, that that only enhances your, your deflation call. Oh, sure. Yep. And, 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 Am- and Amazon and the online, online sales and retailing is a very good example of that. I mean, it's tremendously product- productive and tremendously deflationary. Yep. You think of all the middlemen you're, you're, you're cutting out there, you're looking at, at all the bricks and mortar stores, which are, you know, what are they going to do with them? I don't know, make gyms or warehouses or whatever out of them. I mean, you, you're just ending up with a lot of, of excess yep. capacity. It's the creative, uh, creative destruction. You've got to get rid of it somehow. Yep. But, but uh, the, the ease of, of online retailing, it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, if you look at, if you believe, and this is hard for me to believe because it's very short term, but if you look at any um, business activity index, today's uh, small business activity index, the NFIB index, hit the highest level since 2004. And I look back at CapEx, for example, as a leading, exa- a leading indicator for productivity. If you don't have CapEx, you're not going to create something more productive. CapEx negative 23 months in a row. Well, yeah, like, what happens that, if people start That's investing? very tricky. Uh, we've done a lot of work on that over the years, and there's a very low correlation between capital spending and productivity. Really? Even on a yeah. long-term yeah. tail when you get a boot, big pop? Even, I mean, for example, productivity in the 1930s, the economy was just in the, in the, in the can, Productivity growth averaged 2.3% per year, one of mm. the fastest decades. Why? Because a lot of the productivity-enhancing technologies of the 20s were only realized in the 30s. Again, it takes time. I mean, in the 1920s, you had electrification of homes and factories, which opened up appliances and, and radio and all these things you couldn't run without electricity. Telephones. Telephones had great growth in the 30s. People couldn't afford anything, but it was such a hot idea, uh, uh, such a useful technology that telephone usage zoomed in the 30s. In other words, it takes time. And, and yeah, long term, there is, but, but right now, basic problem with, with capital spending is you just got too much excess capacity. Mm-hmm. And again, with globalization, you, you got capacity here and you got all this stuff in China and elsewhere. And that's really like, I mean, it's. Uh we, we very much agree on this strong dollar deflation. Oil gets yeah. to a level and then starts to deflate again. I mean, is there a place that's got more supply than oil? I'm sorry? Is it, the oversupply in, or that we can't see that we're about to see in the oil markets, is that something oh, yeah. that is just the in most... oil. Yeah, is that the most ragingly obvious Oh, yeah, example? yeah, and that's American frackers. They're now the swing, produ- swing producers. OPEC is a cart- effective yeah. cartel, I think, is, is history. And, and they realize that. Mm. And, and uh, you know, they, they got involved in this elaborate game of chicken back in yep. November of 2014. They said, we're getting tired of 
of they've had they had no growth in production for ten years, and all the growth went to American frackers and Russia and the oil sands in Canada. And they said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna show them we're gonna flood the market." They went from thirty million barrels a day to thirty-four million barrels a day, and uh, they were gonna force somebody else out. Game mm-hmm. of chicken. Well, guess who t- turned out to be the chickens? It was OPEC. <laughs> <laughs> and and of course, what happens is even if they succeed, they lost credibility in the meanwhile. And their record of uh, their record of compliance since since 1982, there have been 17 uh, announced production cuts. The the compliance rate is only 60 percent. Yeah, I mean, you you explain this at our macrocosm conference yeah. when you explain you know, the thing about cartels and cheaters. I mean, that's that, yeah. I think that'd probably be worth people hearing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, that's that's the nature of the beast. I mean, <laughs> a cartel exists to keep prices above equilibrium, and. And uh, so that encourages cheating. Somebody wants in the cartel or outside wants more than their share. <laughs> so the role of the, of the cartel leader, in this case the Saudis, is to cut its own production to accommodate the cheaters. And I say, they just, they just get tired and say, hey, we're, we're, we're getting, we, we don't like this game. And, and so they, they took a big gamble and they basically have lost. And, and I, think that the, I think that now we'll see, uh, supposedly this, this whole thing kicks in this month uh, on the, on the uh, agreement to cut. And they're supposed to cut 1% of global production, bring supply and demand in balance. But meanwhile, the frackers, you know, and the interesting <laughs> thing about uh, frackers is that the, that the wells, the, the, the rig count is going up. But what's more important is the rig counts that's going up are the, are the, are the horizontal rigs. Production. In other words, they drill, they drill down and rather than just one hole for rig, they drill down and then they, they go out like yep. spokes of a wheel. Yep. And they can, they can drill, you know, 20 20 uh, wells, in effect, from one mm-hmm. rig. So the rigs they took off are the old vertical ones, and the ones they're putting on now are the, are the horizontal. Yeah. So, so you're seeing, you're seeing uh, a very low, you know, the, the rig count really doesn't, doesn't so that's matter. A gr- that's a great working <coughs> example of how you can have an asset allocation <coughs> or a lack of an asset allocation towards a big market because it has all the things you're talking about, globalization, productivity, technological gains, yeah. fracking. Um, that's so. That's something that is 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 the OPEC panic equivalent to to a Federal Reserve or a BOJ or an ECB panic in that regard. They know that they're going to lose this, so they have to do do everything they possibly can to lie to you. Well, the the only exception is they know what they can lose is their lives as well. I mean, uh, you know, if, <laughs> if, a, if a Fed chairman goes down in disgrace, they at least don't get murdered <laughs> by their own citizens on the street corner. That's 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 being a little. Uh, carrying a little too far, but you know these these countries are 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 uh, they're very fragile. Yeah. I mean, for example, in Saudi Arabia, the royal family are are, are Sunnis, uh, and they the, where the oil is in the northeast are Shiites, and okay, they're all Muslims, but they hate each other dearly, and they basically use oil money to buy off the Shiites. You know, the, the population there they really don't work; they have no show government jobs and so on. So when they, if they can't keep that money flowing. Then the question is, are they going to survive? And that part of the world, you know, when you lose, you lose kind of big. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, kind of. <laughs> really big. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Last question. Because um, I, I get asked all the time and I need a better answer, and you come up with better answers than I have. When you talk about being a long bond bull and you separate growth and inflation as factors, what is the thing that matters more? And does inflation accelerating, if you, if you think it's accelerating, matter more than growth slowing? Oh yeah, if you if you look at if you look at the long term correlation uh, between inflation and and treasury yields, it's very very tight. Uh, from from right after World War II, 
Uh, like year over year trending inflation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Year over year CPI and and I've got a, a, a graph we use twenty year bond yields because it, we've got the data going back. I like the thirty year because the longer the yield, the more the more, more appreciation uh, when rates go down. Of course, it works the other way, unfortunately. <laughs> but uh, if you, it's a very very tight correlation. So uh, if you want to you want to make a, a forecast on on uh, treasury yields, you're making, you really start with a forecast on inflation. From a long-term perspective, from not a long-term. from a short-term Yeah, but, you know, there's been, a, there's been a backups all the way down uh, mm-hmm. since, since the early 80s. I mean, nothing goes in directly in a straight line, and in a way, you don't want it to. I mean, yeah. hey, you know, we manage money, and, and uh, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. feel good <laughs> when it backs up on you, but if it didn't back up occasionally, then everybody would say, hey, this is, I can't miss. Yeah. And then I've, you would get a rational exuberance. I've, I spent all of yesterday with um, institutional investors in New York, and, and I find that, <laughs> tri- like, given that the answer, I agree with your answer. So if I get inflation, if I get the dollar right, I get inflation right, I'm probably going to get bond yields right. Yeah. Um, but Q1 is an interesting one. This is short term for you, but for me, it's like I have to talk about it. <laughs> um, but Q1 inflation's to the, to the, you know, federalistas is going to look quite high, if only because the year-over-year comparison, because you had thirty-dollar oil in the first quarter last year, yeah. a very suppressed level of inflation. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're going to wake up with the thing that they were asking for. They're two percent. Yeah. Um, do you do you think they overreact to that, or that they grab that? And yeah, I, I think. Well, actually, uh, in our our uh, January edition of our monthly newsletter, Insight, we talk about uh, it's, it's really devoted to inflation deflation, and what it looks at in particular is service service area because services mm. are growing relative to goods that's always true yep. in in developed and developing countries there's only so many cars you can have in the driveway but you can spend almost unlimited money on on health and travel and recreation and so on and so forth and so service service deflation is there but you have a tremendous financial services you know the business mm. you're in Tremendous deflation now. You look at what's happening to rate cut, uh, uh, cutting in rates, hedge funds, uh, uh, ETF rates. You know they're selling uh, zero management fees and so on. Uh, healthcare uh, inflation has come down dramatically. Education. Mm-hmm. People are beginning to say, "What do I get for the money I pay for yep. little Louis tuition?" Uh, that's coming down. Uh, uh, and of course, we we talked earlier about about retail trade. What's happening with yep. online? So I think there's I think there's a lot of and that, those are domestic uh, and, and, and services. Of course, most services are 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 domestic. You can't you can't get a haircut uh, imported. Of course, I don't need one. But but, but uh, and then you have all the the goods and, and imported services. A lot of call centers, offshore and legal services performed in India for American. Uh, legal firms and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, it, it it makes it like everything you say. It makes a lot of common sense, and I think that that's why, over the years, so many people have found such a, a fond following. Uh, but one be- thing, there is no deflation. I'm a beekeeper. <laughs> oh, th- I thought you were going to show me a bottle of gold. This is nope. uh, this is the real gold. That's right. Yeah, I'm a, I got a hundred hives. I'm the I'm the beekeeper. I got two guys on my staff who help me. Really? And. Uh, we give it all away to our friends and clients, and I hope <laughs> it you. It says I, I don't know like if you guys honey. can see this. It says nothing trumps our honey. Yeah, yeah. Every year we we try to come up with a topical label, and this year, well, this last year, we had to come up with it before the election to get everything printed and everything. And uh, we thought, what can we do here? Because you know we didn't know which way the election was going to go, but we figured that would work either way. Oh, that's perfect. Nothing trumps our honey. Yeah, it's clever, and uh, as most things, Gary Schilling, it's accurate. So thank you very much for this. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for the conversation. Well, yeah. I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to this edition of Hedgeye's Real Conversations. If you enjoyed this interview, we encourage you to subscribe to Hedgeye Podcasts for automatic downloads of future interviews with top market and economic thought leaders. You can also visit Hedgeye.com for additional content. There you can learn more about our financial research firm's comprehensive market research products and complimentary videos and analysis. The proceeding has been presented for informational purposes only, and none of the information contained herein constitutes a solicitation, offer, opinion, or recommendation by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guest speakers to buy or sell any security or to provide legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice regarding the profitability or suitability of any security or investment. Opinions and analysis are based on information from sources believed to be reliable. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can and may go up or down based on any number of factors. Consult your financial professional before investing.